Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Sadie Rodriguez. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist in Atlanta, and my co-host today... My name is Lillian Sue, and I'm a cardiac intensivist at Phoenix Children's. And today we have a really wonderful discussion we're going to hold around self-advocacy with two amazing guests, which I will let introduce themselves. I'm Roxanne Kirsch. I'm one of the cardiac intensivists at the Hospital for Sick Children, Toronto. I'm Mary McBride, and I'm a cardiac intensivist at Lurie Children's in Chicago. Wonderful. Thank you all for being with me today and Lillian to have this conversation. Thank you on self-advocacy, which I think is a skill that is needed lifelong, no matter the career trajectory you're on. For our listeners who range listening to the podcast all the way from trainees to more advanced career trajectory and also range from being always at the bedside to just, you know, in the lab or in their educational or scholarly work. But I think a topic that probably hits for everybody, no matter what they're doing or where they find themselves. And just wanted to start off the conversation asking you just something so basic, but what is advocacy or self-advocacy to you? I mean, there's probably several ways to answer it, which is what makes it a great question. I think there's there's probably a couple of pieces to it. So it's about finding your voice and it's finding your confidence within yourself. So having some sort of understanding of who you are, what you want to do, how you want to do it. And that may not be fully formed ideas at all points in time as you're advocating for yourself, but finding your voice in which to express that or to bring yourself forward or to make sure that you're a person that gets to participate in moving the field or doing the thing that you're contributing to. I love that. And I think it's also a an opportunity to be your best self, even as whatever that is for you is evolving. The opportunity to you know, ask for what you need and be who you want to be. Just to take that and make it then maybe a little bit more personal, like what does that mean then to be who you want to be or be your best self? What are some of the barriers that you see people need help with in finding the courage to find their voice or the clarity to find their voice even? I mean, I think it's a hard one because everybody's going to need a little bit something different. So, and we we talked about this earlier during this conference that, you need to find the people that can help you. And I sort of think of it as help you help yourself. So your mentors, your sounding boards, whether they're peers or people with other experiences or more experiences, whether they're people in the field or outside of the field are all going to be things that inform you or in a certain way, maybe I think of it this way, reflect back to you what you're telling them in such a way that you can re-envision what you actually, you can get at what you actually want or how you actually want to get there. And you can be self-reflective and even self-critical in a way that's still informative to you and developing you and not in a judgment evaluated sense, which you can often feel, I think, when you're trying to describe, especially early on, what I want to do or how I want to do it, and somebody is not getting it, or they look confused, or they're just never going to get it. And you get a lot of interesting sort of responses. It can be hard to understand how you then take a step forward and how you continue to advocate for yourself. So it's the who can be the reflectors back to you of what you're doing and what you want. And one of the other important concepts that I think comes up is you need to know who your who your couple of people are that will call you out. Whereas I say, I need somebody who can call me out of my crap. I don't want to get away with it, actually. I'll try it every time. I'm still me. And I want somebody to call me out on it when I've taken a step too far. So I think that those are important pieces to, to building that kind of self-advocacy. Absolutely. And whoever those people are is going to be very unique to who you are and what it is that you're looking for. And 
it's all too easy to emulate those who came before you and thinking about what it is that you're supposed to do and to not listen to yourself for what it is that you want. And so finding someone who who knows who you are or is willing to learn who you are and what you want, who you trust, and who isn't trying to help you be successful by making them successful. That could happen, but as long as it's more altruistic than that, I think that's really important. And I think the thing that you're touching upon is this idea of success in whose eyes, right? And so sometimes people, I think, define success in individual terms, and then they impose that definition of success on other people. And I think it is important that you as a person really think hard about what success means to you. So for the listeners who weren't part of the session, we're actually here at PCICS in DC, and we're recording after the pre-conference, which I thought was just amazing. It was a PCICS pre-conference for junior faculty and giving people advice about how they grow in their careers. And I think a theme that came out of the conference was building this team of support, right? Because like you said, you really need people who are going to advocate for you, sponsor you, mentor you, but also call you out when you are deviating from the person they truly believe you can be. And I think finding people like that is just so important. Agree. And I look around this table and, you know, between Roxanne, myself, Sadie, and Lillian, like we all carved out a really unique niche. And they're all different, but they're very different from the stereotypical academic cardiac intensivists. And not one of the four of us was that like super easy without obstacles. And so we had to kind of carve our own path. And there are probably lots of examples through our small world of pediatric cardiac critical care. And there are certainly many, many more examples throughout academic medicine and even beyond. But there's a way to get there, whatever it is. I think you have to eliminate the shoulds. This comes back to what you were saying before, the you should do this and you should be this thing and you should do it in this way and it should look like the way that I'm telling you it looks. And when you're somebody who has an interest that nobody seems to to think is a thing. So for my example, ethics, I was told multiple times, isn't really a thing, Roxanne. It's not everybody needs to be ethical. Let's find you a focus. It's just, it's disconcerting. It can be upsetting. You like really feel like you've caught on to something that you want to pursue and be interested in. And it'll be the same for all of you all in the different ways that you pursue things. But it's finding the people who will be interesting. Tell me more about that. And it'll help you refine your story because you're going to have to advocate for yourself even more than if you happen to be a person who is like, actually, I can meet all your shoulds and I can follow your beautifully laid out path that many have walked before me. There is nothing wrong with choosing a path that many people have trod before. So it's just that you have a nice little map. And we don't get maps if you choose something different. But it's like, how can you find people that help you build your own map that, you know, get you your compass in the woods so you can redirect yourself when you've gone off the in the wrong direction so that you can continue to, to build within yourself and say, no, I'm going to see this through. I'm going to find another way to do it. And you have to be able to duck and weave. And I think that probably taps into everybody's advocacy. Because even when you think you're on the train tracks path, you're going to have deviations. And so you're going to have to be able to, to duck and weave to a certain extent from whatever people say you should be doing. But if all you ever follow is somebody else's should, you aren't actually advocating for yourself unless they reflect back and find that that is in fact what you want. I love that. And I 
feel like it's a really simple tool also to help you find clarity mm-hmm. in what your path is or your passion or your voice is, is continuing to recenter back to your desire, your your vision, and then using the other people as tools to refine, to explore, to improve or deconstruct, whatever that may be. Agreed. I think shoulds add guilt. Mm-hmm. And sometimes shame. Mm-hmm. Like I felt bad that I don't fit into the boxes many times in my career, particularly because I'd have these people who were trying to squeeze me back into the boxes. And it's just like you end up with a lot of wasted emotional energy for no reason. And if you can find the right people to sort of validate and understand, then that's helpful. But that doesn't mean that I'm like off some pioneer in the woods by myself figuring it out. But I still need people, right? So you have to find a path and so as I say, the eliminate the shoulds, there is a path and there is a track and there are boxes. I have to accept at some point, I still resist them regularly, but I have to accept there are in fact boxes. And so who can help you tell your story so that those who only know the boxes can still see where you might be adjacent to the boxes or fit in one of the boxes or ground them in something so that they can help you help yourself. Mm-hmm. One thing you had brought up that I thought was really interesting, I hadn't thought about it exactly in the way of self-advocacy, but as you're talking about representing the story or the vision that you had of your career, let's take, for example, of, of ethics. And, and it's one thing for you to be saying, like, this is what I think, this is what I see, this is what I want to go. And another, you had brought up that advocacy is not always you talking, but sometimes it's showing the value. Hmm. So how did you help your faculty or a group navigate something ethically? And then not necessarily by talking, but through action, have another route of self-advocacy. I thought that was really interesting. Thanks. Yeah. I, I think I think it reflected from some of the things the other panel members had said. But there's ways that you can advocate, particularly if you're different, that aren't going to always be sitting down with your division head and saying, this is what I want to do, or this is how I want to do it. And some of building your your story will help you. The more you have to sort of explain what it is, like I used to find it very distressing to try, oh, it's obviously it's ethics, like let's just move on. Why is everybody quizzing me? But when I'm now on the other side of the of the fence and I have somebody who's come to me as a junior faculty or trainee and says, I have something interesting I want to do. It's really actually then benefited me to be able to hear what they're saying and reflect back to them so that we can build a story together. And then you know how to sell yourself, which is also part of the advocacy. And then you know that here's the work that I'm doing. And then when you do the work, you can refer people back to it in that sort of way of not necessarily speaking, but just getting the work done that also advocates for you. And I would say that Because we're dealing with the critically ill cardiac patient, that there is so much that we can all do to improve that patient's path, that child's path. And we're all sitting here recording a podcast, which really was thanks to the ingenuity of David Warhol. And many people would say, like 10 years ago, what's the point of a podcast? And Now it's become such a popular medium to convey knowledge and things like that. And I look at David's career and how he has done social media for different societies and things like that. And so I I would just say to the listeners that you just never know the value that you can bring in different ways. And if you're feeling like you may not fit in a conventional path, think long and hard about how you're going to improve the life of the child in that cardiac ICU bed. And if you have a meaningful contribution, I think PCICS really does want to hear that. I mean, we are a society that wants to hear those ideas for the next 10 to 
to 15 years? Because I think about your career as well, Sadie. I mean, and the fact that this has become such a big part of your academic career and David has established a way for people to actually get credit for things like podcasts and things like that. So I think there are a lot of careers out there that we're not even thinking about now that robots and AI and all of those things are are going to be taking over that I think we all should just be open to what, what that path is going to be. Hey, listeners, we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, Children's of Alabama. As a joint cooperative of Children's of Alabama and the University of Alabama at Birmingham, the Pediatric and Congenital Heart Center of Alabama is a leader in comprehensive pediatric and adult congenital cardiac care for the people of Alabama and the southeastern United States. We celebrate multidisciplinary teamwork to provide the highest quality family-centered care. To provide research and clinical innovation that translates into improved patient outcomes and safety, and to prepare our future healthcare leaders via fellowship training. Our center includes 20 state of the art CVICU rooms, four dedicated ECMO suites, and easy access to the UAB high risk obstetric birthing suites and regional neonatal intensive care unit. On average, we perform over 450 cardiac surgeries per year, which includes more than 300 cases on cardiopulmonary bypass and approximately 10 heart transplants per year. We perform over 700 cardiac catheterizations per year, which is including 100 EP cases and ablations. We also provide over 1,500 2D and 3D echocardiograms per year, which includes more than 600 transesophageal echoes and more than 250 fetal echoes. Our specialized cardiac support team includes advanced practice nurses, respiratory therapists, child life, social work, pharmacists, a dietitian, and speech, occupational, and physical therapist. You can learn more at uab.edu. I was going to just segue in. One of the things when I was a first-year critical care fellow, my program director and my senior fellow said to me on week one, it's true. You actually don't know anything about pediatric critical care, but when you show up to a floor, I want you to fake it until you actually know something. And being the person that I am, that actually never resonated with me because I hated pretending to know something that I actually didn't because it felt very false to me. So I kind of want to get your senses of what people should do when they're advocating for themselves, but being honest with themselves, they actually don't have all the tools that they need. And what are your thoughts on this fake it till you make it kind of thing? Uh, we hear that a lot, right? And I'm also not a good actress. And so I'm not, I'm like, I can't tell a lie to save my life. So I, that resonates with me so much. And I think it's okay to be honest with yourself and ask for the help that you need. And, and I guess what I'm thinking when I say that is I need your experience, I need your guidance, but in my heart, in my head, whatever, I feel this, I think this, this kind of activity feels good for me. It resonates with me. It makes me want to do it more. Like whatever that is of like, you know in your heart what you enjoy doing. And so go with that. I knew in my heart that I didn't care for research. I don't enjoy it at all. But I just always assumed that there would be a part of my life, like a part of my job that I was just going to have to put up with. Like, I don't know anybody who has a job where they like every tiny aspect of it, right? I would love to never write another progress note. I would love to never write another manuscript. I hate it. But I also know that to some extent, I kind of have to do it. But education for me 
I actually ended up like I knew I liked to teach, but then when I really started to nerd out in education world, I actually really enjoyed it. And then it made me a better teacher. And so I guess my point of all that is that like it's cheesy, but do follow your heart and figure out a way to connect it with where you're headed. I mean, I think you can. There's there's something in between the fake it till you make it, which which I've said before, but it's usually about a patient when I'm like, we're just going to sit tight. And we're just going to make some of these numbers look better and wait it out. That's my fake it till you make it moment. But I think there's something confused in the like, pretend you know something that you don't. Mm-hmm. It's resonating for all of us because I find us all very authentic people. And there's a lot of people that are resonate. If authenticity is a core principle for you, you're not going to do great at pretending you know things that you don't. But it kind of conflates two issues. You can be confident and not know everything. Mm. And if you can only be confident because you know everything, you're never going to be able to be confident or you'll always be overconfident. <laughs> It'll never quite work out in your favor. So I think there's something different to to being able to coach somebody perhaps in a, in a slightly different way and say, you may not know everything yet. And when you say, I'm here, this is the role that I have. I have backup and I'm going to ask extra questions so that I can understand. And I have people that can help me help you, however it is. Because there is something to be said for offering, I know what the intent of that would have been is offering the ability to make a different team feel supported because you're coming from a team that has a certain skill set. You're coming from a lens that has a skill set. So there's probably moments in all of our lives and we're like, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but me looking like I'm in a panic is not going to help anybody in this room. So I'm just going to be calm. And that's maybe a better way to say it than to just say, pretend you know a bunch of stuff that you don't know yet. But I bet you that that's what they actually were really trying to get at. And I think that there are times that fake it till you make it can work, but you have to be careful that it's you're being authentic. I've even been like, I'm going to fake it till I make it right now and just like own it. That's being authentic within within saying like, we're just going to proceed confidently even if we don't know what we're we're doing at the other end of it or we're figuring it out as we go. That's true. I think that's such a good point. You can choose to be confident in your ability to get help or <laughs> you're confident in your ability to recognize your limitations and hold both truths at the same time that what you do feel strong in, you can offer And the fact that you maybe don't know the next step doesn't take away from what you do know or what you see or what you believe in. And you can sort of hold them both. That reminds me of what I say in the middle of the night in the unit when I have no idea what I'm doing. I will look at the nurses and look at my fellow and just say, and typically this is the case, you know what? We are smart, resourceful women and we will figure it out. Mm -hmm. But that's saying like, I'm still confident here. We're still going to do something and it's going to be great. I just don't know what it is yet. Right. <laughs> and it's very different than being like, I don't know what's going on, throwing up your hands right. and wandering off. You're there, you're yeah. present, you're owning it, We're, and you're being open to the other ideas, though, also. You're going to get way more help from your team if you're like, dudes, this is hard and we're going to have to figure this out together. We'll put everybody in the mode of like, actually, none of us know where this is going, but we're all going to function together. And there's some humility in that, which we also talked about during the conference and how important it is to have that humility there to be curious and ask questions no matter what your role is. And that's all part of still advocating for yourself. Yeah. And I think one of the jobs of a cardiac intensivist is being able to sit in the gray Yeah, because our field rarely ever has black and white. And the black and white stuff, we should know like the back of our hand. There's no excuse for the knowledge deficits, but a lot of what we do, or when there's two lesions in the same patient, which have opposite management strategies, I think we have to be comfortable with sitting in the gray and sitting in that moment of uncertainty. And then just to 
we confirm to ourselves and to our peers and to junior faculty and trainees that our brain does not like that. We do not like to sit in the gray. Evolutionarily, we were meant to make choices, which is why we all in medical school, A, B, C, D, this is the right answer, this is the wrong answer. And I think we all know in life, especially in cardiac critical care, you have to sit in the gray and kind of absorb it. And then when you do act, sometimes it's a little step in that direction. You're testing a hypothesis and then getting the information back then incorporating that data to then make your your next step. And I think sometimes that can be misinterpreted, particularly for women, as indecisiveness, right? And when really it takes a lot of courage to be able to just sit in the gray and be comfortable in that in that discomfort. I think that's so fabulous, Lillian. And I also was just thinking and reflecting as you were speaking that you could apply every single thing you said to your career and how you do your self-advocacy. Okay, I'm going to try something out. We don't always have to have mm-hmm. a career in a straight line. And, you know, I actually used to do lots of simulation. I was very participant in the sim team at TROP and when I, at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And when I moved to SickKids, there were people already doing that. And it wasn't my core passion and my core academic focus. So I really moved away from that. But the facilitation skills from simulation combined with the facilitation skills of the mediation and bioethics mean that I was able to pull upon all these facilitation skills in many different ways that really helped the ethics career and the ongoing academic improvement. So you're never going to wind up in a straight line. Even the people who are on paths with boxes that can be checked don't wind up on a straight line. But this, let's get a little data. Let's try it out advocating for yourself might be taking some ability to say, I'm going to need a little bit of time to figure this out. I'm going to need your support to try this thing for a few years or whatever the timeline makes sense so that I can figure out if it really is something that I'm going to explode and really dig into deep or if I'm going to have to redirect it. And that's going to be a hard thing to say, and it's going to depend a lot on your safe space with your leader, whether or not you can do that. But it certainly benefited me to be able to say, I nobody's done this particular thing that I want to do. So I actually, I actually have said this to my leaders. I'm just going to need some space to fail so that I can, you know, try something and then maybe it doesn't work out, but I'll have learned something from it. And I will, I, my promise is that I will pick myself up and figure out a way to move it forward because this is the core of what I want to do. I just don't know for sure how to get there because I don't fit the boxes. So nobody's got the steps planned out for me owning it was part of me developing my voice and my agency and my self-advocacy. This is not first or second year of career, just so that any of the listeners out there, this was not me at six months in. That <laughs> was me at like year seven, having figured out a lot of things and having completed my master's degree and really kind of going down this path of saying ethics is my thing. And now I've got to do it in a way that's clinically integrated. That isn't maybe the way it looks for other people or other ways. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it's interesting to hear your story, even though I know I've heard it before, but I started in simulation and then really fell onto the debriefing side of things, which lent itself as a path to feedback. And then that has lent itself to this path of faculty development that I do now do. And so, and if someone had told me at the end of fellowship, you're going to be in charge of faculty development, I would have been like, I'm, I don't know anything about faculty development. And so I think it's really important to, no matter what your career is or what you think it's going to look like, there will be experiences and opportunities more than likely that change. And so your career will kind of go up and down and swivel around and you'll figure it out. And to appreciate those leaders who give you that space to fail, right? And to acknowledge, I think 
as a leader, Rox, I mean, you are going to have to now groom these junior faculty. And, you know, being a medical director myself, I do think that when faculty are applying for jobs, it is nice when they come as a package and how that piece of the puzzle is going to fit into the wider puzzle of the entire division. And when they sell themselves that way, that's an easier way to do it. But some of the most creative people in our field aren't going to be that puzzle piece that fits quite nicely. So, Rux, kind of as a leader for you, how are you approaching fostering it's, that in junior faculty? It's a perfect segue, Lillian, because it's true. I like now have to walk the talk that I've been talking or every complaint I ever have. I have to try not to live out because <laughs> now I get the the position of the power. So I think I said earlier, somewhere in the day, I, I think I spent a lot of my life trying to be authentic and speak truth to power. And now that I get the power, I have to still speak the truth. And that is actually almost more challenging than ever getting there because I could be me focused, me focused in a sense of, okay, I have to figure out how to navigate this and advocate for myself and get all my helpers to to make that happen. But now I'm like, okay, here's somebody who doesn't necessarily or hasn't developed their voice yet or has something new or interesting. And how can I be open to that while still not leaving my entire team in disarray or not leaving somebody float endlessly without support? And I sort of just wind up I think, holding myself to my own ideals. Okay, when it was me, what was the thing that was said wrong? Where did it come from? There was a good intent there. They were trying to not have me fail. They were trying to help me from not failing. So it's like, okay, let me listen to what I said that made them extra worried about how they were going to fail. And then let me try and help this person reflect back to them a way that they could tell this to me differently. And maybe we can make it work together. You like to say, oh, let's just ask people what they need. And then lots of times, I've been there. I don't know what I need. And people maybe don't know how to answer that question. So it's also like, can we take this by stepwise approach? And trying to be the person who's open to those who don't fit the boxes means that I actually have to hold myself to being truly open to those that don't fit the boxes. And that's probably going to be an up and down street for me. And I'm going to have to navigate it a few times. And I still have peeps and people to reflect on. And those who are going to be like, Rox, you really missing the boat on this one. You need to think about how you're approaching this or what could be different. So a lot of it is I wanted people to be more open and curious to help me help myself. So I need to be open and curious to try and help people help themselves. And the other thing is that even if having a conversation, let's say it's about a recruitment or something like that, I'm never going to have all the positions I want. And I can't hire only people who have alternate careers that are not traditional because that's not going to work either. We all need a blend of everything. So I always know I can never help all the people, but in a single conversation, I could potentially provide something that I wished was provided to me more often, which is some ideas, some ways of retelling your story, some other avenues to to look beyond. And I think we talked a little bit about sponsorship. It might even just be, I have a different platform and now I can sponsor you to give the talk or to write the paper that then gives you a, a way to sort of get some validity in what you're trying to do to help you get that job with somebody else or whatever it might be. Just like listening to you and thinking of this phrase that says you can't give power to the people if the people don't have power, Mm -hmm. but like just that real bi-directional need. Like I'm hearing you talk about some freedom to explore and also some structure to move forward Mm -hmm. and how you need both of those on the self-advocacy side. And you also need that on the organizational side, some freedom and some structure to do that exploration, 
deconstruction, reconstruction, whatever it may look like, but how it really takes both, I guess is what I was trying to get yeah. back to, both the I self agree. and the, even though it's titled self-advocacy, how that dance of mm -hmm. the organization or somebody else can be a key into that being a stop or a go. It's true. It's true. And the you also made me think of the bi-directionality of how it can work well for a leader. So my team has always been oriented in a philosophy or my division has always been oriented in a philosophy that a leader gets appointed and it is actually everybody's job to help make the leader successful. Mm -hmm. This is It's not competition anymore. If the leader succeeds, you succeed. If you succeed, the leader succeeds. If we're all in it together, everybody gets further. Then well, they got chosen and maybe I don't like that reason for it or this reason for it, or I'm in competition mode and like, let's see how this person does and just leave them out there hanging because you're still reliant on everybody that's working with you. So it's really the, how can you be in it together for everybody to, to be better? And that means you're always going to have to be humble. You're going to have to be vulnerable with each other. And then as leaders, I think that this is still evolving in the field because we've been told for so long to have all these, and they're always male oriented. You are immovable. You are un, have no no emotions. You're always one way and you are always fine. Your team can never know you're not fine. There's a little bit of truth to that. You can't be falling apart all over the place. Nobody's going to be confident in you as a leader. But maybe we can develop a way of being a little bit vulnerable with our teams so that they can have something to grab onto where we are actually helping each other. And then they'll be more vulnerable with you and actually everybody's getting further ahead. So that's a little bit of how I, I, I like the bi-directionality of that. But it also makes me think of how we as a team or as a vision can build success and build. You have to have a team culture that can support that. So much of it depends on trust. Mm -hmm. You trust your leader that he or she has the best intentions for you and your career. And then the leader has to trust that you have the best intentions for the division and for the unit yeah. and ultimately for the patient in the bed. Yeah. And I think if we can be explicit and then authentic about asking ourselves, are we in a job? Are we in a position in our lives where we really feel that? And I think it is difficult if you start to question and say, does my leader have my best intentions in mind? And do they believe that I can become the person that I believe I can be? And I think there are going to be circumstances where that's not always going to be true. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's a struggle and that's difficult. Yeah. And then it either has to be hard, transparent conversations to get yourself to that point or you have to go somewhere else. Yeah. Or you find your niche elsewhere. Yes. I always define myself as an other and I just mean didn't fit the boxes, didn't pick a traditional path. I think the others wind up in the advantage. They've had lots of things they've had to do differently, but you have an advantage of having had to grow some community outside of just your division, let's say, or just your clinical job. So you have to lean lean to other areas potentially because sometimes you can't move. I completely okay. agree with you. At some point, it may become this is not the place for you or the environment or the culture. And that might not necessarily make it, we should also say, doesn't necessarily make it a bad culture no. or a bad place or a bad leader. Bad for you. It doesn't right. suit you. Yeah. Right? It's not yeah. the right match for you. And that may mean you need to be brave enough to leave if that's possible. And if it's not possible to leave, it may be that you need to be brave enough to explore beyond what's obviously in front of you. It's not bad. It's clarifying. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it could be bad. 
Hopefully sure. not. We don't want that for people, but no. we know it exists. But it might not be. Like your reason for leaving does not always have to be something terrible happened. You sometimes need to self-advocate to get where you're going and take an opportunity or or move in a new direction or just uproot yourself to to grow. Any closing thoughts? Yeah, we talked a lot about humility and being a good listener. And so I just that hasn't really come up in this conversation at the moment, but I do wanted to add those two points of part of self-advocacy is really, truly listening to hopefully a very trusted person on the other side of the table. Well, thank you both again for speaking to us today. And we really enjoyed having you. We hope our listeners enjoyed as well. To all of our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member, enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.